Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's guest is Brian Wilson. Brian is the author of Blazing Paddles, a Scottish coastal odyssey where he shares his trip around the country and dances with waves about his journey around Ireland. Brian shares some of the fun folklore, stories of the people he met along the way, and a really creepy situation that he found himself in. But before we get get to our chat with Brian, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. If you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here's your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com, use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. And Level 6 continues as a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and we have a special offer just for you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, just visit their website at level6.com. Use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order there as well. And with that, enjoy today's episode with Brian Wilson. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Hi, John. Thanks very much. I appreciate you joining me today. So, Brian, tell me how you got your start as a paddler. I, I was kind of a self-starter, I suppose. I, I'd always wanted to travel on water, but but uh, had visions of inflatable dinghies and just any, any way of getting around. And it was not until kind of late teens that I discovered kayaks. And there was, there was a local scout troop who were selling off second-hand uh, kayaks in, in terrible condition. But uh, I managed to get one of those and patch it up and then just experiment on my local river, which was the River Dee in Aberdeenshire, Scotland. And just used to play around on, on uh, going up and down the river and trying out little bits of uh, fast-moving water. And uh, pulling the, the kayak back home at the end of the day on a pair of old pram wheels. So it really was just a, a case of trial and error, making mistakes, trying to make them once and not twice. And uh, just learning the, the basics. All but right. it was many years and, until I first put a, put a kayak on, on salt water. And then did a fair bit of uh, travelling by sea in kayaks at... Uh, at Edinburgh University in my uh, 20s, early 20s. And so it, it's it's interesting that uh, I've talked to many guests from UK, Scotland, Ireland, and it's surprising how many times inflatables and scouts come up. I'm not surprised. You know, I, th- I think uh, the, the scouts, I suppose, played, a, played an important part on getting people used to using the water. Uh, there was an organization called the Sea Scouts as well, and I think were, were very good. I didn't have any involvement myself, but uh, I could see them in various locations doing a lot of good things with uh, with youngsters on on the water. Huh. Yeah, Sea Scouts. I've not I've not heard that one specifically. I don't know if it even still exists. Okay. So uh, early twenties, you said you started to put uh, boats on salt water, and that leads you to a 1985 journey along the coast of Scotland. Yeah, by by that time I I had graduated. I was about twenty two, and had done some shorter trips with with groups from Edinburgh University, just ten days or or a week or two here here and there on the west coast of Scotland, exploring the islands, 
and just loved that that form of travel, that form of exploration. And it was never enough for me. I always wanted to do a little bit more. And so when I graduated and had a bit of time on my hands, didn't have a job, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have a, a family to uh, be responsible for, I decided that it would be a really great thing to just uh, head off and not stop. And the best way of doing that, I thought, would be to, to just try to go right around the whole of Scotland. And I had no idea whether that was possible. I, I don't think it had been done before. That wasn't really the motivation for doing it. But I just wanted to do more of what I really loved and, and what I found worked very well as a, as a method of traveling around. So how long was that journey? That turned up well, when I set off, I didn't know how long it would be, and I, I didn't know what route I was going to take. And if you're familiar with the geography of Scotland, you, you'll know that there's an awful lot of uh, different routes you could take, particularly up the west coast. So I decided to, to go up uh, via the west side of the Isle of Skye, and then out to the Outer Hebrides before coming back to the mainland and continuing a clockwise route around the rest of the mainland. So by the time that had, that had happened, the, the route total was about 1,800 miles and took about four months to complete. Now, how did you plan that route? I, I planned to do it in a clockwise direction because the prevailing winds on the west coast are southwesterlies, which means that in theory they would be behind me a lot of the time on the most difficult sections of the of the route. Also, by going clockwise around Scotland, you, you tackle most of the the difficult sections, the, the big tidal headlands and so on, in order of increasing difficulty, more or less. And the really difficult parts, like uh, Cape Wrath in the northwest or the, the whole of the north coast with the, the strong tidal headlands, uh, come well into the journey by which time I thought I'd either have packed it in or become quite good at doing what needed to be done. <laughs> that was the theory. In fact, it turned out to be fairly realistic, but that, that was the ethos behind the planning. And I thought that I would be able to carry supplies for about a month at a time for a solo trip. Uh, so I posted boxes of fresh supplies to where I thought I would be at the end of each month. So what resources did you use to plan that trip? That was, that was simply put together using uh, Ordnance Survey maps, tidal stream atlases, uh, and anything that I could read about coastal information, coastal hazards along the way. I, I, I sat and devoured books and books on anything to do with the sea and the coast for several months before setting off. Now, you mentioned uh, when you got to some of those harder points that you decided that you were those going to be those were going to be a certain uh, distance into the trip that you would have kind of gotten better at that point. So how did you develop your skills to be able to say, I'm ready to start this trip? I, I practiced a lot of self-rescue work, rolling, worked a lot on stamina and fitness. I was, I was a, a competing judo player at the time and was doing a lot of fitness work, very, very fit. So that side wasn't too difficult, but actual stamina to con to complete to you know continue doing something very physical for for 
a full day and then several days in a row and, and still have the energy to pull yourself out of a difficult situation. That's something I had to work on quite a bit. So the the safety side was, was really reliant on, on being very good on self-rescue and rolling. And, uh, you know, the backup was to have the stamina to get out of difficult situations. And what kind of uh, multi-day multi or a long-distance experience did you have prior? I think, I think the longest trip I'd done prior to setting off on, on the Blazing Paddles journey was probably about two weeks. So I, I knew I could easily carry enough equipment for, for two weeks and thought that it should be quite possible to carry enough for a month or more. And uh, obviously that's, that is the case in the decent-sized uh, sea kayak. So Scotland is rich with folklore. So share some of that with us that you experienced along the way. Yeah, well, that was that was one of the, the motivations of of, uh, of mine in setting off. I'm very interested in some of the folklore of of the Western Isles and and the Northern Isles, particularly stories of uh, the the Selkies, the Seal people. The stories of Selkies tend to occur everywhere that there are grey seals inhabiting the, the local waters. People tend to relate to their behaviour through stories of, of Selkies. And, and this, the Selkie stories are varied, but there are recurring themes on them. For example, that seals will shed their skins and take human form at a certain time of year, or humans will, will, become, will return to the sea in the form of seals at, under certain influences. And these stories are used to explain unwanted pregnancies and various mysteries in, in remote coastal villages which might be difficult to refer to w without a story to back up uh, the uh, the confrontations. So the, the Selkie lore is to do with, I, I think, a longing of people for the sea and almost a longing that they interpret of seals for the land. And it's, it's quite interesting, evolutionary, when you, when you think that seals actually did come from a land mammal. They weren't, they weren't a sea mammal originally. They, they come from dog and bear stock, if you go back along the evolutionary lines. So it is possible to, to believe that seals in the water still have a, a longing to be on land, just as many old sailors and uh, fishermen who've retired have a longing to be back on the sea. I've never heard the Selkie lore before. Is that right? Okay, yeah. well, it, it does crop up. It's not just specific to Scotland, and it varies through different parts of Scotland. The, the stories in the Western Isles are, are slightly different from the stories in the Orkneys and the Northern Isles, but it occurs around the coast of Ireland as well, and also anywhere in the world where grey seals seem to predominate, in, including down at the south end of South America, I think there are similar tales with with similar seal species down there. So what, what other uh, interesting folklore? The, there are quite a few stories connected with areas with rough tides. Like, f for example, in, in the, the Minch, which is the area between mainland Scotland and the Outer Hebrides, uh, there's a, a lot of... Uh, Pretty tricky waters there, difficult tidal conditions. And one way of explaining that in the past was to talk about the blue men of the Minch who were responsible for the waters becoming unmanageable and for the safety of the people who were crossing those waters. 
and you had to take certain precautions in order to to keep these blue men of the Minch on your side. So the superstition of the local boatmen was to pay, you know, to pay attention to the blue men of the Minch, in addition to paying attention to the the other factors that you would take into account if you're traveling through difficult tidal waters in a in a fickle climate. So did you experience the blue men of the Minch? I experienced the the, the tricky waters of the Minch. Yeah. And I, you know, it's it's very easy to see how superstitions like that could build up because sometimes you can pay all the attention you can to the weather and the 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 tidal streams and the tidal predictions and the atlases and and still come across water that is doing things that uh, it shouldn't be doing flowing the wrong direction or churning up when you didn't expect it to or not uh, conforming to the pattern of, of the tides that was predicted. So that, that sort of unpredictability is, I suppose, easy to attribute to some kind of fickle uh, spirit. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a completely un- unexplained phenomenon. Sometimes it seems that way, yeah. <laughs> so how are the Outer Hebrides different from, uh, from the rest of Scotland, or are they? Well, they're, they're different culturally. You know, they... they predominantly Gaelic speaking the the culture the music the the language is different out there but I suppose the the, the main difference is their remoteness and their their exposure so they're further west and it's a, it's a chain of islands that stretches quite quite a long way down the west coast and the west side tends to be very very exposed big swell big surf and the eastern side is more more protected so if someone is, is, is traveling up the west side of the Outer Hebrides, then they're, they're probably experiencing some of the most exposed conditions that are, that are available in the, in the whole of the Scottish waters. There aren't always good places to land. I mean, there are a lot of cliffs and headlands with strong tidal conditions around them. And there are a lot of uh, big, beautiful beaches too, but quite often these have uh, heavy surf landing on them. How is that different from the mainland? It's different only by degree, I think. I mean, there are parts of the mainland that are uh, equally exposed, particularly up in the northwest. There are just as difficult headlands and tidal streams on parts of the mainland. But I think that uh, the the weather's more extreme on the the Outer Hebrides. The winds are uh, predominantly stronger. And there are more areas which are remote and uninhabited than you find generally on, on the mainland. So to, to do an extended kayak trip out there might mean that you are away from roads, away from telephone signal, away from people. And on a solo trip, you know, you really have to be uh, very self-reliant. So I assume that some of your longest crossings were up in that area. Not necessarily. The distance between the islands and in, in the, the Hebridean chain is not huge. Okay. So it's not really a matter of long crossings. Certainly the crossings out to the Hebrides and back are long. You, you're looking at anything from 20 to 30 miles or above. But the, the distances between the islands are, are not great. But the tidal streams run strongly between the islands. So the, the challenge is more in lining up your tides and weather and trying to decide whether you're heading for civilized inhabited parts or looking for the the more remote 
uninhabited areas and a bit of peace and quiet. And back in 1985, when I was going around that area, uh, there weren't mobile phones and it was it was really uh, a case of being very well prepared and self-reliant and not not be not having to be able to to be in communication with anyone it it was um important to to have uh, everything you need and to know exactly what you're doing in terms of how long you you needed to stay on a particular place so you had some interesting misadventures on this trip. So tell us about Tex Geddes, the shark hunter. Uh, well, no, I, I wouldn't put that as a misadventure. I mean, Tex, <laughs> meeting Tex Geddes was, was one of the highlights of, of my trip. He, he was a, a fascinating chap. Uh, he was living on, on an island called Soe, which is very close to the west side of the island of Skye. And he was an old man by the time I met him. And I was very interested in the story of Gavin Maxwell and Ring of Bright Water and, you know, the, the, the man who lived remotely with, with otters. He had at one point set up a venture with Tex Geddes to hunt for sharks, for basking sharks in Scottish waters. So the two of them in the 1940s had uh, set up this shark hunting venture on the, based on the island of Soe. And after that... Uh, venture had failed. Tex remained on the island, and and basically re-established a community on the island of Soe. After that, and he he remained as a a, a fisherman at the time I visited in, in 1985. He the, the interesting thing about meeting Tex was I I met him on the on the shore of the Isle of Skye, and told him that I intended to go out to the Isle of Soe to visit. And he said, no, there's no way you can get out there in that little kayak of yours. Despite the fact that I'd already come hundreds of miles up the, up the coast of Scotland in it alone, he thought it was, it was certainly not fit for the crossing to the island of Soe. So he insisted I put the boat on his fishing boat and, and took me over there. And then was very hospitable once I was there. I, I was in no hurry to leave. I wanted to hear all about his stories about shark, shark fishing and rum smuggling and knife throwing and boxing and the various things he'd done in his career and he was happy to sit all, all evening and tell stories over bottles of homebrew and uh, I think in the end he basically had to throw me out because I'd, I would have stayed for weeks just listening to the, his histories and his take on what, what it was like in that part of Scotland in the, in the days before. Sounds like some fascinating stories. Yeah, really fascinating, lovely guy. He's he's no longer with us, sadly. He 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 died in his eighties a few years later. Now, did you specifically seek him out in terms of meeting him? I suppose I I I did. I was going to head to Soy anyway, and I, I had hoped to to come across him to to uh, meet him and ask a few questions about the shark fishing days. So to have bumped into him on on the, the main island of Skye was was really a stroke of good luck. So when he would hunt a shark, what did he do with the shark? They they would hunt these shark. The, the basking shark is is a huge animal. It's about thirty foot long. And they would harpoon these sharks and then tow them into their their uh, uh, processing station on the island of Soe, where really at that time what they were after was the the liver of the shark, 
which would then be processed to produce a, a very fine grade of, of oil, which was used for, for machine work. They wasted a lot of the shark at that time, and I think the, they found it eventually uh, commercially un, unproductive because they weren't really selling enough of the other parts of the shark. They didn't have a, a, a commercial market for the rest of the shark, so there was a lot of waste, and they were reliant on what they could do with the, the livers. So I think the, the whole venture was really doomed from the start. Basking sharks began to dwindle in Scottish waters anyway around about that time. And I don't think it was because they were, they were killing too many. I think they just weren't. It wasn't a sustainable business because the, the coming and going of the basking sharks has always been, I think, a, a little bit fickle. And descriptions of how many there used to be at times in Scottish waters uh, doesn't bear any resemblance to what we see these days. Although some accounts seem to suggest that basking shark sightings are increasing again at the moment for, for various reasons. So it's good to see that they're coming back. But I think that the shark, shark hunting industry that Tex had back at that time was on such a small scale that it didn't really make an impact on the, the shark uh, populations. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of waste. I, I can't say I've seen shark steaks for sale anywhere. No, I don't think they even they even tried using the meat. I'm not sure it's even even very palatable. Now, you mentioned sustainability and, uh, and a lot of waste there, and I understand environmental impact and sustainability has been a focus of yours on your trips. Well, I, I just think you can't travel for, you know, sustained journeys on in a vessel like a kayak, right at sea level, living close to the, the water's edge in the, in the intertidal zone, being at sea all day and uh, living with, with the nature of the coast and the, the weather systems without becoming kind of tuned into the complex ecology of the, of the coastal regions and the sea itself. And I think what, once you become kind of properly tuned into that, it, it would be very difficult not to be interested in becoming more informed about the, the wildlife of the coast and therefore, you know, becoming concerned about the impact that we have on the coast and on the, the species that live there. And yeah, the sustainability of human practices in relation to uh, coastal wildlife, uh, coastal ecology and marine ecosystems in general. Now, um, how did you experience wildlife on the on that trip? I, I think when I set off in 1985, I, I knew very little about wildlife in general and, and coastal wildlife in particular. So any encounter, any experience that I had from otters and seals along the coast to, to trying to catch fish for my dinner to encountering some of the huge varied uh, seabird colonies along the way, all of that was educational for me, and it was a, an ongoing process, which, you know, over that four-month spell, w was hugely, uh, not, not just entertaining, but informative. And by the end of it, I, I, I feel I knew, at least I knew what I wanted to find out, and I knew a lot more than I did at the beginning. So that trip, I think, was the basis for a desire to find out more about coastal ecology, about the threats to marine wildlife, uh, about the problems and issues that are facing the coast and the coastal communities, human communities as well as uh, as well as wildlife communities, and so 
it was probably the foundation of a, a lifelong interest in, in these issues. And then you documented that trip and, and some of those issues in your book, Blazing Petals? Yeah, that's right. And, I, you know, I'm thinking back to that, that trip was 1985. Uh, a lot of the issues that I was beginning to be aware of back then, from plastic pollution to uh, disturbance of wildlife and overfishing, these, these things have become almost facts of life now. You know, I think there weren't many people back in the mid-1980s talking about these issues. Whereas now, I think uh, these, these are worldwide urgent uh, subjects that many more of us are, are beginning to discuss. Not just beginning to discuss, but beginning to think are a, a very serious uh, and imminent threat to the, the biodiversity of, of our world. You know, it, it, was, it was interesting back in 1985 to, to start to become aware of some of these issues. And when I wrote Blazing Paddles, I, 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 I mentioned quite a few of these, these issues. And I actually took the time to say in an introduction to the book to, to almost justify why these, these uh, subjects were in there. I don't think anyone these days would need to do that to make that justification because anyone who's out there paddling or exploring or enjoying the outdoors is probably far better tuned into these these issues than people used to be. I think if you read expedition stories, uh, ex exploration stories pre-1980s, very few of these were, were talking about environmental issues at all. But it's, it's very much a, a part and parcel of working in the outdoors now, enjoying the outdoors recreationally or professionally, is to be aware and try to improve the, the, the situation for wildlife awareness and also reducing our impact on, on the outdoors. It certainly has become much, much more uh, top of mind. I think, I, th I think that's right across the board, John. So five years later, you did Ireland, uh, which you documented in Dances with Waves. So tell us a little bit about Ireland and uh, why that trip and how it was different. Well, it wasn't very different. You know, I, I wanted to repeat the, the kind of trip that I'd done in Blazing Paddles, which was a self-contained solo trip, not reliant on, on any shore support or backup, and just going along in a sustainable way, exploring a coastline, doing what I love doing, traveling quietly and steadily, and meeting people and situations along the way. So that's what happened in Blazing Paddles. That's what I set out to do in Dances with Waves and going around Ireland. And the only differences really came from, from the Irish geography and the Irish people. And, and therefore the stories that were thrown up along the way were slightly different. I think probably comparing the two trips, the biggest difference was in the, the human connections. The, the Scottish journey was uh, quite often I had long periods of, of solitude and kind of proper wilderness and being out on my own and not seeing other people for, for several days in a row. Whereas on the Irish journey, I had far more human encounters and meetings with, with very interesting, funny, inspirational people along the way. So I think it was more of a, a human interest trip than, than the, the Scottish coastline had been at that time. So I know it's taking you back a number of years, but can you share some of those uh, human interest stories with us? I think, you know, one of the most interesting things about going around Ireland in 1990 was that 
in the, in many of the remoter places, people hadn't seen sea kayaks or hadn't had much contact with them. And I, I quite enjoyed coming into in some of these remoter places and just seeing what people made of the fact that I was trying to go around Ireland by, by kayak. And quite often they would they would come up and see the kayak without without noticing me if it was pulled up on the shore or something. And it had stickers on the side of it saying Round Ireland Solo. And I remember sitting one time in the lee of a, a small pier in County Kerry and two fishermen approaching the boat and, and just kicking it and having a look at it, reading the stickers on it. And one of them read the sticker and said Round Ireland Solo. And he looked at me and he said, Round Ireland solo, how many of you are doing that then? <laughs> and so I, I said to him, because I thought he was just joking, and I said, well, there are, there are two of us, me and the boat. <laughs> and he said, oh, great. Well, I wouldn't give much for your chances, he said, but I think the boat might make it. <laughs> so he had great respect for this boat, but thought I was probably a bit of a waste of time. <laughs> and it, it was just really interesting seeing people's take on why somebody would be doing this journey and another time in a, in a fairly remote place a little shop on the west of of county clare people were explaining that uh, i was the guy who was trying to get right around ireland in a kayak and this other old man stood up and he said uh, surely everyone knows that the sea goes all the way around ireland why would he be trying to discover that and he thought it was a, a voyage of uh, exploration rather than a, <laughs> a circumnavigation <laughs> so it, it was really interesting just trying to to make sense of how people interpreted what I, what I was doing and why I would be doing it but the, the the sense of hospitality was fantastic and as soon as people would make that initial connection and have a little bit of chat about what your journey meant they would they would be uh, instantly offering a place to stay or something to eat or an address further up the line of someone I could look look up if I was in trouble or wanted a, wanted some dinner. And that kind of openness w was just fantastic to, to experience. Tell us about the Ghost Galleon of Mizzenhead. Yeah, yeah, now that, that was a that was an interesting thing. To me it remains a bit of a mystery how that, how that happened. Uh, let me Set the context. Mizzenhead is the, is the the big southwest headland of Ireland, so it's it's out on the west coast. It sticks well out into the Atlantic. It's a big, uh, committing headland with, in certain swell conditions, nowhere really that you can come ashore for for many many miles. So I set off around Mizzenhead in in quite boisterous conditions. It was a big a big rolling swell. I knew that I'd have to keep paddling for for most of the day before I would find a, a, a safe place to come ashore. So set off into quite a bright sun and a big rolling swell stretching way out into the Atlantic and had to stay well offshore because the waves were crashing against the cliffs closer inshore and I wanted to stay a good half mile out at least. So at times I was further out than that, maybe about a mile offshore. and. Probably I was a little bit tired, probably I was a little bit anxious about some of the conditions, but I don't remember being particularly hallucinatory or anything like that. But at, at some point I turned to my left and became aware of a, of a huge galleon-type sailing ship, old style, heading straight towards me. And I remember 
thinking two things. I thought, what a fantastic replica that boat is. Uh, as I looked up at, the, at it under full sail from quite close under its bows. And the other thing I thought was, I need to get out of the way of this boat fast. And I also thought, gosh, he's on a collision course for these cliffs. There's no way he can turn that in time to avoid the cliffs. And those were the thoughts that went through my head. But I, I busied myself with getting out of the, the, uh, out of the path of the boat. Paddled hard off to one side and then turned around to look at this boat passing. And it wasn't there. It, there was just nothing there. And the, the strange thing is that it wasn't just a, a vague impression I had of a boat. It was the the very clear and detailed impression of a of a huge boat with lots of features that I would I would have found it hard to imagine or hallucinate you know the the full sails and the fact that it was tip heeling over to one side big bow wave in front of it and so I was I was a bit confused about what this was all about and I continued on my route to paddle away and was thinking about this for for days afterwards and stopped and eventually researched what had happened in that area. And it turned out that the, the Spanish Armada that tried to invade Britain and was scuttled on the south coast of England, they dispersed and spent weeks trying to sail up north around the, the top of Britain and then come right down via the west side of Ireland. There were only several boats left, just a handful of boats left by that time, and mostly in pretty poor condition. And they didn't have charts for the west of Ireland. So they their charts showed Ireland just as a straight, a straight coast and didn't show any of these big headlands that uh, were projecting out into the, into the sea. So several of these Spanish boats that survived the trip right round Britain came, came to grief on the headlands of Western Ireland. So I, I didn't know that at the time, but it may be that... Uh, what I was experiencing was some kind of, not a, not a ghost as such, but some kind of flashback to a traumatic time centuries before, that uh, time warp or whatever, that something had in, imprinted itself in the geography in the area that, that I'd somehow tuned into as I passed that, in that region. Interesting. Very difficult to explain, but um, to me it still remains as, as fresh as the day it happened. I can still picture that board. And you hadn't yeah. done research into that prior? I hadn't before that point. You know, it, it made me look into the, the history of that area afterwards. And in doing that, it explained what, I'd, what I think I'd seen. It's, uh, that, that coast is anything but straight, as you mentioned. It's absolutely not straight. That's <laughs> right. So um, on either trip, what scared you? Uh, yeah, well, I think sometimes the nature of a, of a solo trip is that you're scared most of the time. You're either scared of what's about to happen or uh, how, how close you came to uh, grief on something that, that has already happened. There are moments of peace and tranquility, don't get me wrong, and it's, and it's a lovely thing to be doing, but you, you are in a kind of heightened state of, of anxiety, I think, a lot of the time, especially if you don't have any means of communication with you where you can discuss some of the decision-making and the planning process with, with other people. So on the, on the Scottish trip, I was scared a lot about uh, some of the, the decision-making on whether to go out or in certain conditions or not, uh, what the commitment would be, where I'd be able to get back uh, ashore again, how difficult the tidal 
or weather conditions would be in certain exposed areas, some of the big headlands, some of the, the very exposed parts of the, the west side of the Outer Hebrides. So, yeah, what was I scared of was basically the, the conditions I would meet and my abilities to deal with them. And sometimes those things are a little bit too closely matched for, for comfort. It's interesting thinking about, if I think back over both of those trips and what scared me most, it's not weather conditions or difficulties in, in kayaking, but something com completely unexpected. If I think about the Irish trip, there, there was a, a phase coming down the east coast of Ireland where I, was, I felt I was falling behind a little bit on the schedule I, I was trying to stick to. And so I did a long overnight paddle down part of the east coast which wasn't difficult or dangerous just you know you have that heightened vigilance of pa trying to paddle through the night through the dark trying to well with without gps because i didn't have anything like that at the time just using a compass bearing trying to uh, be aware of the weather be aware of the tides and aware of the time that you'd have to paddle before there was light again and i decided to come inshore a little bit at a place called Arklo where there was a fishing harbour and I thought there might be some some lights on at night in the fishing harbour they might be able to pull in there and have a cup of tea have a look at the map properly take a little bit of a break before setting off again so in the in the pitch dark I pulled in through the the mouth of the harbour and pulled in to the inner harbour where there was a pool of light being thrown by one of these uh, floodlights and I sat in that pool of light and tried to relax, tried to breathe properly and get my nerves calm so they could start, start off on the second half of that trip. And as I was trying to uh, just get a grip on myself, all of a sudden in this pool of light, a hand came out of the water and reached towards me and almost gave me a heart attack. But what it turned out to be was just a, a fisherman's glove with air in the fingers bobbing along upright in the water and that's all it took to give me the you know the biggest fright that I ever had in kayaking in in all those years far more scared of that than than any of the the big waves and surf that occurred on either of those trips i uh, I, I had the chills just just in hearing it so well you know it's it's all to do with just the your your state of anxiety and how frayed your nerves are it's it's nothing to do with uh, the the actual conditions it's how you perceive them yeah so aside from the uh the incredible amount of technology that we have today uh, at our fingertips what would be different about paddling either scotland or ireland today than when you did your trips well i think i think it is about equipment those those differences really are are technological communication is is different roads are better maybe some of the more remote areas are more inhabited now uh, fish farms have popped up in some of the remote areas so there are there are people living and working on those in places that would have been uh, very quiet before i think that there's more boat traffic there are more recreational yachts and sailors around in the summer months in both of these countries so maybe maybe there are changes on all those fronts but it, i think that the the bigger issues are to do with technological changes and, and equipment that 
that people seeking a trip of that sort would choose to take with them these days. So what were some of your key pieces of kit and, and what boat did you use? On, on the journey around Scotland, I used a Nord cap with very basic equipment, the hand pump on it, no GPS, no mobile phone. The, the key pieces of, of equipment I think that I had with me then were, well, a, a small pair of binoculars was very useful for getting a preview of where, where would be possible to land or whether there were difficult conditions up ahead without having to go all the way there to, to find out. Books to read, duct tape for all sorts of emergencies, and just a, a notebook for keeping, keeping a journal about daily events, daily conversations. What would you do different if you did either trip again? What would I do different? I, well, I think now, if I did repeat one of those trips, I probably wouldn't do it solo. Okay. And I, I now tend to enjoy the company of a couple of other paddlers that I would like to share that experience with. I think that's just to do with changes in, in my own personal approach to things. I really did enjoy doing those trips in a solo uh, manner. And I think traveling on my own allowed me to meet a lot of uh, people along the way and get involved in their stories in a way that it's not always easy if you've got a, a, even a couple of friends with you especially if you're traveling in a bigger group, very difficult to uh, merge with what's happening along the coast and the things that other people are doing. But I think if I was to repeat those trips, I, I would do it in company uh, rather than alone. Interesting. Why did you choose to do them solo uh, before, first time? I, I think I was happier with my own company at that time. I, I almost was seeking solitude, enjoyed solitude, enjoyed the time that it gave me to, to read and think uh, so solitude was useful either if I was in a uh, a remote situation and I would in, just enjoy that peace and quiet and the whole experience of being uh, there on my own but solo travel was also useful in terms of if I wanted to be sociable I could I could rock up somewhere and just kind of make some connections with, with local people and get involved that was very easy to do it was very easy for people to be hospitable to a, a, a single traveler passing through. What advice would you have for a, for a would-be circumnavigator? Well, certainly don't rule out doing it solo because there are, there are huge rewards in, in, in doing that. Uh, advice for circumnavigation? Well, you know... I, it might be a little bit controversial, but I, I would say can at least consider seriously leaving behind some of the technology that makes these things easy or over safe. And maybe consider leaving behind some of the equipment that allows us to too easily communicate along the way or to feel the, the obligation to have to be communicating all the time with you know, either producing some kind of blog or regular updates, or even feeling that you need to be on the phone to someone every day. I, I didn't have to make those decisions back in 1985 or 1990, uh, you know, to, to, to leave a, a mobile phone behind or to leave GPS behind, because they, they really weren't available back then. And so the experience of, of those circumnavigations back in that era would be very difficult to replicate now without making the decision to leave behind the, the modern trappings of, of easy communication, easy rescue, easy calling for help, and 
the the sort of constant chatter that we are all involved in these days. So I think, uh, you know, give serious consideration if you want an experience like what I'm describing in, in either of those books. It's not available if you take too much technology with you. Uh, I think proper wilderness, proper solitude is, is something that only comes by leaving the, the modern technology out of it. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you know the potential for that being controversial, but I will tell you that you're not the first guest who has said that same thing. Okay, and it's controversial, I think, probably only because of the safety aspect. Yeah. You know, the rest of it is a, is a, a choice for individuals. What sort of experience are they looking for? But if you choose to leave behind some of these technological aids and then get into trouble, there's the, the, the clear path for criticism in the fact that you've left behind what were possible safety aids. And I think that decision has to be very carefully thought, thought through. Yeah, but you also have to balance that, uh, that desire to have a proper adventure with, with programming the adventure out of the adventure. Yeah, it, it, it becomes quite a, a conundrum of thought, really. But I think if, if solitude and peace is what you're looking for, don't feel that uh, you're going to get that if you're going to be constantly communicating with people who are not in that situation with you. So you mentioned, uh, you know, just as, as you said here, not, not being able to communicate, not being able to have that, uh, that blog or whatnot, but you were able to do this differently in that you documented your trips in two books. So we've talked about those just briefly. Blazing Paddles uh, was about the Scotland trip in 1985, and that came out in 1988, and then Dances with Waves about Ireland came out in 1991 uh, or 1992, right around there. So tell us about those books. Blazing Paddles was a, a product of that trip, that first trip I did, that first extended solo trip around Scotland. I had a vague idea that I'd like to write something after that trip was finished, but I didn't really know how to go about it. I didn't really know that I could write a book about it. So all I did on, on the journey was to try to keep as many notes as I could about the, the situations I was in, the people I met, the places I went, my reactions to those situations, and the, the conversations I had with various people. So I was keeping a fairly detailed journal, and it was only later after coming back that I, I thought, you know, there is the basis there. That if I can string this together, I can probably make a make a, a story of this that would be readable and i think that 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 worked i mean blazing paddles is now in its fourth edition it's proved to be a reasonably popular book it's uh, i think been of interest to a lot of people who've who've gone on to do paddling journeys of their own but also of interest to people who who are not paddlers at all because i tried to write it from the point of view to appeal to someone who just had an interest in coastal issues and travel uh, and didn't necessarily need to involve themselves in kayaking. So the kayaking almost uh, is an incidental part of it. It's just a method of getting around the coast, a method of getting into different situations and a method of experiencing the, the stories that you, you come across along the way. But I think the important part was the journaling uh, at the time of doing the, the adventure writing down the impressions and the reactions in an honest way at the time that they happened and then trying to stick with those and reproduce that experience in the book without trying to 
modify it too much. Well, there are certainly a lot more stories uh, contained in the books than we've had an opportunity to talk about today. So where can people find the books? Dances with Waves has become a little bit hard to get. Uh, the, the previous edition of that one, uh, it is several years old now. It's still available. I think probably the best source would be Amazon or eBay for, for Dances with Waves. Blazing Paddles is in its fourth edition now and is available through Berlin Books. That's B-I-R-L-I-N-N, Berlin Books. That's the best source for getting that. And some of the previous editions will, will still be available on, on Amazon and, uh, and secondhand. All right. Well, we will put uh, links in the show notes to, uh, to Berlin Books. And I'm assuming they have an online presence, but we'll uh, put, that, put those links out there so folks can get the books. Great. So where can people learn more about you and your trips? Well, I think uh, maybe the best way to get in touch is through Berlin Books as a publisher. Yeah, you'd be able to get onto their website and find a, an email address there. If anyone has a particular set of queries or something that, that I can help with or, or maybe to discuss anything that is in the books, I'd be happy to respond personally. They can get me on, uh, on my own email, which is uh, brinkstone. B-R-I-N-K-S-T-O-N-E. So Brinkstone55 at gmail.com. Excellent. So what's next for you? Any other trips planned? Yeah, well, I'm doing a lot, a lot these days with folding boats. I enjoy trips in, in quite warm waters. Uh, relaxing trips quite often with a partner and a double. Uh, my partner Justine and I have uh, started a, a trip down through the coast of Turkey, we'd like to continue that. We've we've done the section through the Aegean and down into the Mediterranean. We'd like to continue that on uh, towards the coast of Syria. We'd like to go and paddle in the the Philippines, maybe down in Fiji or Indonesia. And I'd also like to go back and do some of the the Greek island paddles and back to Corsica and possibly Sardinia. So a lot of these these warm water trips, which are actually very relaxing, but kayak is definitely, for me, the, the best way to, to experience a new coastline or a familiar coastline. It just gives you that independence, that self-contained way to uh, get from A to B, not dependent on anyone else, and just a relaxed form of coastal exploration and easy living along a, a beautiful stretch of uh, water. Well, those, de those definitely sound nice. Any future books in the plans? Possibly. All right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very busy with other work at the moment, but I'd, li I'd like to think that some of the trips I've done to uh, some of the, the Greek islands, and Galapagos, and Costa Rica, and the Azores might form a book about the, the theme of Atlantis, the, the myth of Atlantis, and why it's remained a, a popular story and what it means in terms of the human psyche and uh, our need to relate to water. It sounds interesting. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to reading that if, it, if and when it becomes available. Thank you very much. <laughs> so this has been fantastic. I really had the enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you, Brian, today and uh, learn about your trips uh, around Scotland and Ireland um, and then your more recent warm water adventures. So thank you very much for joining me today. I, I appreciate that. I do have one final question for you, and that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue?
Okay, well, yeah, I, I gave this uh, matter some thought and uh, there are lots of inspiring paddlers and people who've had, had much to do with the, the kayak world. But one that kept coming to the surface of, of my thoughts was, was a chap called Chris Duff. Uh, and I met Chris some years ago when he came to Scotland as part of a, a series of trips he was doing to link up the stepping stone route from America to Scotland. Uh, Chris is an American paddler and uh, general water adventurer. He, he, he's done some inspiring rowing trips as well as some, some uh, wonderful paddling trips. He's uh, a very modest guy with some great stories to tell and I'm, I'm pretty sure he'd be a fantastic guest. Excellent. Well, thank you for the opportunity and uh, for help with help with the connection there. Um, Chris's uh, his, his book um, was the the first book I read around about going around Ireland. So uh, I will look forward to that opportunity and we'll work, work with you to make that connection. So again, Brian, thank you very much. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you today and learn about your trips and uh, and be able to share them with the world. Thank you, John. Enjoyed it a lot. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler. Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I told you there was a creepy situation. The hair on my arm stood on end when he dropped the part about the hand reaching out of the water. I've never heard of the Selkies or the Blue Man of the Minch either. So thanks to Brian for sharing those stories and his adventures with us. And once again, Brian hasn't been the first and won't be the last to encourage us not to overprogram our adventures. Now, don't mistake that with foregoing key pieces of safety equipment, but instead manage what you have and what you truly need for the experience that you seek. Be sure to visit the show notes for this episode, number 93, for links to Brian's books, Dances with Waves, and Blazing Paddles. Thanks again to our partners at Level 6 and Online Sea Kayaking for extending special offers to you. And if you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, just visit their website at level6.com. Use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order. And visit onlineseakayaking.com. Take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and many other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. Just enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next guest is David Johnston. He's an Ontario, Canada sea kayak coach and all-around fun guy. David shares some of his favorite places to paddle, along with his thoughts on coaching and a few funny stories as well. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.